This is Serial Killer, a true crime podcast. My name is Anne McElhenney, and I'm a journalist. I've covered a lot of strange stories in my career, from the mystery of a body discovered in a suitcase in a canal in Dublin, to a Romanian child adopted and then abandoned by a rich Canadian family. I've even infiltrated a baby trafficking ring in Indonesia. But I've never covered a story like the case of Philadelphia's Dr. Kermit Baron Gosnell. He is America's most prolific serial killer, but you've probably never heard of him. The Gosnell story first emerged to me as a truly grotesque true crime story. What we experienced was far beyond anything I could ever have imagined. I often refer to him as like a Hannibal Lecter type person. America is obsessed with crime and serial killers. Fictional and true crime shows dominate the TV listings and the podcast charts. But few people know about Dr. Kermit Gosnell's crimes. Yet he killed hundreds, perhaps thousands. His crimes are horrific. Most of his victims were babies. He also killed and mutilated many, many women, mostly minorities. He gathered trophies of body parts. He took intimate photos of his victims. He recruited others to kill. And according to his victims and staff, seemed to take pleasure in his crimes. Gosnell was also one of Philadelphia's biggest drug dealers. He first came to the attention of the police in 1972 for mutilating almost a dozen women. But he was allowed to continue practicing medicine and killing until he was finally arrested in 2011. Little did I know what I was in for and all that we were going to uncover and to realize what it was he was doing and how horrific it was. It's the most upsetting case I ever worked on. I, don't, I never had a case that, that bothered me as much as this. It was horrible. It was a mill. It was a murder mill. Dr. Kermit Baron Gosnell was a medical doctor working in the innocuously named Women's Medical Society Clinic in West Philadelphia. He apparently provided legal abortions for local women and legal later-term abortions for women from across the U.S. From the outside, it looked like a normal, safe and legal medical practice, serving a mostly minority community. It wasn't. It didn't make a lot of sense that this would be a place that anybody could go to receive reputable care, credible care, because the environment itself was so poor that right away it was almost easy to believe that something wasn't right here. How could things be right? The health department knew, the Pennsylvania Department of Health knew, and a lot of people knew, but just never did anything. In the end, America's biggest serial killer wasn't even caught by a homicide detective. Jim Wood was a drugs investigator for the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. For Dr. Gosnell's victims, he was the right cop in the right place at the right time. Jim Wood comes from a family steeped in law enforcement that has had more than its share of tragedy and hardships. Growing up in Philadelphia with 10 siblings, his mother became the breadwinner when his police officer father was diagnosed with MS, aged 38. Life was not easy. Jim's baby brother died as an infant. He lost a sister to cancer and another brother in a traffic accident. Perhaps because of this, he cares deeply about right and wrong and doesn't care about the politics of law enforcement. He just wants to catch criminals. So he was the perfect person to come across someone like Dr. Kermit Gosnell. I'm a drug cop 
and I got involved in a drug investigation and it just happened to lead to this monster. So I can, I can say that I didn't target Dr. Gosnell because he's an abortion doctor. I targeted him because he was also a murderer for proliferating the sale of, of drugs that killed thousands of people. Yeah, so he's a monster in my eyes. It's a very disturbing world with a strange cast of characters, forgotten victims and horrific crimes. We talked to the families of his victims. We talked to others who were his victims, including a woman who visited his clinic and thought she was going to die. I really believe that he was going to let me bleed out. He was going to let me die and he was going to try and cover it up. We also talked to the staff of the clinic to find out what they knew. Most had no medical qualifications. They naively trusted the doctor, and some were party to the crimes of Dr. Gosnell. Like, I didn't even know why I got arrested. Huh. You know, the night they came for me, no one told me what I was getting arrested for, and I didn't know what was going on. Other members of staff admitted to being involved in the crimes and helped the police investigation. When you then came to assist him and were working with him, I mean, you, I think you did take a photograph at one stage, didn't you, Adrian? Yes, I did. I took a photograph. Um, Was that the baby boy? Yes. I saw the news um, because a girlfriend of mine, she called me and she said the doc's office got raided and she said it was on the news. I said, okay, so I'll check it out. I saw it on the news. And I said, okay. I said, all right, it'll be coming for me soon. You know, I just had that feeling. We talked to the jurors from his trial. Once it got started and they made their opening statements, I mean, this is a pretty big thing going on here. This guy, wow. Once all the evidence came out, it was unbelievable. And we hear from Kermit Gosnell himself. I visited him in prison. But Pennsylvania does not allow journalists to record their visits. The interviews you'll hear are from phone calls. He is unrepentant and still proclaims his innocence. I challenged him about his murders, his medical malpractice, his drug trafficking, and just how did he get away with his crimes for decades? Yes, well, that wasn't my fault that they didn't inspect me. I, I felt that I was on the cutting edge of the technology. And I definitely feel that uh, I was among the most qualified and highest skilled providers. This is a call from Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution, Huntingdon. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. I thought homicide was ridiculous, you know, because I know I didn't commit any homicide. I didn't feel that I had done anything wrong at all. This case started with a regular drug investigation by undercover cops, but they had no idea where it would lead them. Detective Jim Wood is the police officer most responsible for bringing Kermit Gosnell to justice. If it wasn't for him, this case would never have been investigated, and Gosnell would still be killing. We started the investigation around 2009. So the reason we initially investigated Gosnell is because of the illegal sale of opioids. It was like a tidal wave when people started hitting the emergency rooms and addiction facilities. 
I'm Molly Halpern of the Bureau, and you're listening to Inside the FBI. The abuse of prescription opioids and street heroin and the resulting overdose deaths are an epidemic in America. When you look at the the death toll from opiate addiction, it's major war level. I mean, it, it, we're, we're at war here. People were being prescribed 80 milligram of oxycodone, which is a very powerful narcotic. And they were initially meant for cancer patients or patients with severe pain. At the time, I was working for the Philadelphia District Attorney's Drug Unit. Uh, it's called the Dangerous Drug Offenders Unit. And what that unit is capable of doing is investigating long-term drug investigations, such as wiretaps, high-level drug sellers, because by the time we get up to the upper-level drug dealers, it's where you're really cutting the head off a snake. The street drug of choice at the time was OxyContin, a prescription medicine which was available in pharmacies if you had a prescription. Drug dealers paid corrupt doctors to write fake prescriptions for hundreds of fake patients, which they then sold to street addicts who made their own highly addictive drug cocktail. And then we came upon a woman known as Kathy Taylor who was selling Oxycontin. We had an undercover officer, Rich Gramlich, who would make the drug purchases from Kathy Taylor. Police officer Richard Gramlich, badge six. It is April 6, times approximately 1.24 p.m. I am uh, placing a call about purchasing Oxycontin 80 pills. Yo. Yo. How are you looking today? I don't know. I never checked. You ain't calling. I'm gonna see if they make them up for me. I was waiting for somebody to call. Yeah, I got enough for I got I got enough for fifty. That's all I can scramble up because some people are still owe me money. But I at least want to get fifty from you if you got them. Yeah, five zero. Call them now because it takes them like two hours to get them together. That's fine. That's fine. Just give me a call back. Okay. All right, cat. Right. Cool. Eleven twenty-six a.m. Thursday, April thirtieth. Uh, shut the recorder off. That was a call from Cat. Uh, Officer Gramlich uh, would make these buys from Kathy Taylor from March of two thousand nine through October two thousand nine. Um, during that time, I worked with Steve Doherty, who's a DEA diversion investigator, and they were nice enough to be able to supply the drug money needed to buy these pills because $1,600, uh, even with a major drug unit that I worked with, was still a lot of money to put out there for purchasing the drug and letting them walk away. When a street-level drugs case starts to gather momentum, it's not unusual for the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration to get involved. The DEA has deep pockets, which can allow local police to buy large amounts of drugs in order to infiltrate the very top of criminal organizations. Apart from resources, getting the DEA involved also bolsters the expertise available for the investigation. Steve Doherty from the DEA was assigned to the case. As pills go, Oxycontin in those days was like $38 a pill, so if you're buying 150 pills, it's a lot of money which the DA's office didn't have that budget for buys, but DEA did. 
But we had to go through channels to, to get stuff signed off, to get these, you know, what was it, four or $5,000 or something to buy a supply of pills. By coincidence, Steve Doherty and Jim Wood knew each other. They grew up in the same Philly neighborhood. Their families knew each other. They'd both gone to the same grade school, albeit a few years apart. As far as Steve was concerned, the Kathy Taylor investigation was just another part of the DEA's attempt to combat the growing opioid crisis. Nothing made this case stand out to begin with. My whole career in DEA, I've been um, as a diversion investigator. My job is very specific to pharmaceutical controlled substances, to the drugs that have a history of and potential for abuse um, on the street. If you take Xanax with any opioid, it gives a great high. So I got involved in criminal investigations of doctors and pharmacists who illegally sell legal drugs. Oxycontin 80 milligrams were the most popular street drug in those days. And most of the pill dealers in the city get their pills through buying prescriptions from doctors, from crooked doctors. They liked those 80 milligram tablets back then because the addicts would crush the pills up, snort them, and they'd be able to bypass the time release of the pill. So, you know, the drug addicts, the opioid addicts at the time, really that was their drug of choice. These investigations and drug buys don't always go smoothly, especially since the money to buy the drugs has to be approved by a bunch of agencies. And so Richie would set up with his, uh, with, the, with the, the woman he was buying from at one point. And then I call him to listen, Richie, the money didn't come through. He says, stay. I got I to gotta set up. I got to meet with her and, and, and I got to tell her. I don't have the money. This fucking asshole don't have the money. I, I, he ain't going to have it till fucking the night or tomorrow. I just found it. The out. So there's a recording and Richie says uh, he meets up with her. Listen, I got to ask you. I hate to ask you this. Can you front me the pills? And I, I have a, the guy, I, I just built a deck for a guy. He owes me 5,000 bucks. He's supposed to pay me today. And he's not going to get it to me until tonight. But I got I got a buyer for these things. I promise we're going to do business again. I don't have the money. You've had this happen to you, haven't you? Oh, tell me about it, Rick. So can I meet with you tomorrow? I mean, if you got to get rid of him, I understand that's fine. But otherwise, I got to meet you tomorrow. Okay. All right, I apologize, man. I just found out now I was just on the phone arguing with him. Okay. All right? Uh, I'll talk to you. Sorry about that. So one drug dealer led to another. The hope is to get to the source, the head of the snake. I definitely have enough for 60 for you. And uh, when I, I'll, I'll talk to you about the doctor uh, when, we, when, I, when I meet up with you. So I'm gonna try. Right. I'm gonna try. I'm gonna. Hopefully, you can get me in there either today or tomorrow. All right. Okay. All right. All right. I'll give you a call all in a little bit. All right. All right. All right. Later. The investigating team felt they were getting closer to arresting a corrupt doctor who was writing illegal prescriptions for drug dealers, and this case would lead to one very interesting doctor. I remember the first time when we found out it was Gosnell. We were in a parking lot up in Overbrook Park, and we placed a recorded phone call to Kathy Taylor. This is Detective Wood. Today's date is May 12th, 2009, approximately 3.06 p.m. We're gonna be placing a call to Kathy Taylor. Kathy Taylor's number is 267. Yo, Kat. 
Yeah, I'm listening. Oh, oh, what's going on? Yeah, man, I heard a few on the month of Sunday. I had to get some people. That's what I was, I was waiting to hear from you. Well, all right, I called you. You said you couldn't do nothing. You got to wait till you sell them, and then you won't call me. Oh, all right. I, I, I didn't know if something happened to you. I just laid low for a couple of days. I, was, I figured I'd shoot a call into you. Um, Richie's talking to her about prices and amounts of drugs that he wants. And then I'm outside trying to hand signal and like, try to find out who who her doctor is. Because I wanted to talk about the other thing that we were going to do. Oh, yeah, when you want to do it, because I'm going to leave in a couple weeks. Well, that's what I'm saying. Um, I'm just trying to figure out why it's there from the savings. No, 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 no. I'm talking about if you take me into your guy, your doctor, how do I know it's right. going to be a definite? Right. Like, like I, what if I go in there and, and I see him, and then all of a sudden he's like, nah, I ain't giving them to you. But do you think that's going to happen? Because I don't want to waste my money. All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to let you know tomorrow, all right? Okay, that's cool. And then the other thing okay. was, my buddies are going to this guy in South Philly, and then, and then my people are only getting Vicodin from him. I don't want to go there and get Vicodin. I'm there for oxys, and I don't want to waste my time with So as long as they tell you where to take it, okay. and you'll get there before the store run out, all right, who, and you're who, who are you taking me to so I know? You know what I mean? Like, you talking about what doctor? Yeah. I told you about Gazelle. Who? Dr. Gazelle. Dr. Darnell? Guy, G-O-S-N-E-L-L, Gazelle. Gosnell, G-O-S-N-E-L-L, Kermit Gosnell. She identified him. Um, and he had such a distinctive name, Kermit Gosnell, that once you hear it, you remember it. And this is the first time when we realized that's the actual doctor who's pushing these pills into the community. You call me tomorrow when you get those things, and then we'll talk. But I'd like to get in there this week to see your boy, your doctor. Okay. Initially, Officer Gramis was trying to get an appointment with Gosnell, which Taylor said could happen. He said, all you have to do is go look for Skinny Linda. She'll hook you up. All you got to do is pay the money, and she'll get you a prescription which Gosnell was giving out like candy. And uh, it, it's definitely a guarantee. I go in there, we're good to go with your doc. Okay, you what you asked for. Okay, cool. All right, uh, you give me a call tomorrow, or you want me, how about you give me a call tomorrow so I don't bug you? Okay. All right, All right cool. All right, I'll All see right. you. All right. Detective Wood, there was a conversation with Kathy Taylor about getting Oxycontins from uh, different doctors. Time is 3.12 p.m. We wanted to try to get to Gosnell and see if he's the problem, because sometimes it stops at the front office and the doctor's not involved, but sometimes, unfortunately, they're making so much money, these doctors, that we can just get right to the source. We, as DEA, we investigate less than one-half of 1% 1 of all doctors. Most doctors are pretty darn good, but you have, a, you have a small element. You give them cash, they'll sell you a prescription. We've had doctors trade bills for cash, for trading drugs for sex. We've had doctors trading drugs for firearms. One guy was trading drugs for home improvements. He had a deck built. Um, we had a doctor who bought major appliances, refrigerators, freezers, washers, dryers. And we've heard of a doctor using writing scripts and using them as tips for exotic dancers. They put them in a little, tucked them in a little belt, and uh, 
Um, some doctors who tr they would trade drugs for sex, or they would if the if the person had sex with them, they would give them a discount on their prescription. So, uh, in any drug case, you want to find the the ultimate source and shut down that source. You don't want to just stop at the street dealer. And Gosnell was kind of on the radar from, you know, when we figured out he was the doctor doing it. The fact that this guy was a doctor who has a special skill, who knows what these drugs are for and sees the effects of abuse on these people, and then he winds up selling thousands of prescriptions for thousands and thousands of pills. That's different than a street kid who has no knowledge. In fact, under what's called federal sentencing guidelines in the U.S., there is a sentencing enhancement for abuse of a special skill. So whereas somebody else might get 10 years for selling um, a bottle of Oxycontin, uh, a doctor will get 10 years plus several months for that because they're abusing a special skill. But investigating crime and criminals is never straightforward. They lead messy, chaotic lives that can derail the best laid plans of law enforcement. Kathy Taylor was caught committing a parole violation for previous charges. Rather than take them to Gosnell, Kathy Taylor was being sent back to prison. Jim Wood's investigation had hit a stumbling block. Kathy Taylor, uh, she actually invited Officer Gramlich to her going away to prison party. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, you can't make this stuff up. Officer Gramlich's deep undercover work had not been in vain. Using his previous relationship with Kathy Taylor as an introduction, he was able to develop Tarina Johnson as a new OxyContin source. Richie was continuing the buys, and he developed another, uh, the same relationship he had with Kathy Taylor, he developed with Tarina Johnson, which was good because that's how we were going to get to Gosnell. But the cultivation of Tarina Johnson also started to go sideways. She stopped responding to phone calls and didn't turn up to arranged meetings. They were in danger of losing a second gateway to the corrupt doctor and were wondering if they would ever get enough evidence to shut him down. Then, through wiretaps, they found out Tarina Johnson was picking up illegal drugs at a pharmacy. You have to, at some point, make a decision. And when she wasn't meeting Officer Gramlich, I kind of got an idea that she might be nervous. However, I thought it was a perfect opportunity. She's got the drugs on her. We know she's getting them illegally from Gosnell's office. Let's, let's stop her. So that's what we did. Down the block, we had a uniform team pull her over. And I got in the car, and as I said to basically all the people in, in this case, I said, you have two choices. Do you want to cooperate or do you want to go to jail? You've been selling to a cop. Boom. And she's like, I want to cooperate. So that's how we get her on board with going after Gosnell. That's the next step. And at that point is when I first found out that Jason Huff, the FBI agent, had an open case on Gosnell as well. It turns out Dr. Gosnell was also on the radar of the FBI. They suspected he was a major opioid supplier. It was time for Jason Huff of the FBI, Jim Wood of the Philly DA's office, and Steve Doherty of the DEA to work together. Their intelligence was good. They had an allegedly corrupt doctor, a clinic at the center of drug dealing, and crucially, an informant who was able to open doors. We took her into custody, 
and she started cooperating. She started telling us that uh, uh, about the drug trafficking, about the setup. Acquiring opioid prescriptions took some effort at the beginning, but then all the dealers had to do was sit back and the drugs kept coming. First of all, they would find homeless people or those who needed money, and they would be paid around $50 to visit a corrupt doctor like Gosnell. You come with me to the doctor's office. You go talk to the doctor. He'll write scripts. You give the scripts to me. You get your 50 bucks, your 100 bucks, whatever it is for, for, your, for your trouble. And bring around 25 of your friends. The prescription for an oxycodone 80 was mostly 60 pills per month. So if you get a free prescription of 60 pills and you sell each one of them for $60, that's $3,600 you can make for one prescription. So say Kathy Taylor would pick up 10 prescriptions and I said each one of those prescriptions was for 60 pills of oxycodone. You're talking $36,000 profit you can make just from one person for one month. The person who we've been buying from, she was getting scripts in 26 different patient names all real people who she had brought there. There was a $150 fee for the doctor to examine the person, but the doctor never examined the person. Um, and then they would charge a certain amount of money per prescription, and he would rewrite the prescriptions every month. So he was making money from this. These prescriptions would then be automatically renewed every month for years. Smurfs was the word used for the patients. That's where he was making the money because of the amount of patients that he was treating and giving the opioids to. He was taking cash. It was $150 for the initial visit, and then I think $60 for every set of prescriptions thereafter. So um, he made a good bit of money. He made a few million on the drugs. Actually, sometimes he complained at one point uh, to one of his employees about he was writing 200 prescriptions a night, and it was inconvenient for him to have to, have to write out so many prescriptions. It's supply and demand. The demand for the pill was so great because of the addiction that went along with it, that it's just one business that never slowed up and it just got increasingly more available to people. By the time we got him, he was probably the biggest writer of Oxycontin 80 milligram in the Philadelphia area. He was writing a lot of drugs and he was making good money from that. With Tarina Johnson now cooperating, they were able to get inside Gosnell's clinic and meet Latasha Lewis, Tarina's contact in the building. Jim Wood explains. Staff was, everybody was making money on, on this. So when the sponsors, so to speak, would show up to pick up the prescriptions, they would pay the receptionists, such as Latasha Lewis, an amount of money as like a tip. Uh, there may be a $20 fee or a $40 fee, so they could make probably $500 to $1,000, I would imagine. A night. They recorded Latasha organizing fake prescriptions and then gave her a familiar choice. Cooperate or go to prison. She decided to cooperate. Having an informer inside the clinic was a game changer. This meant they were able to be sure that it was the doctor himself who was the drug dealer and not a couple of low-level rogue employees profiting for themselves. She recorded a couple conversations with him that she was getting nervous about all these prescriptions that people were picking up. And he said, on tape, I wrote this down. Well, now, sometimes when people pick up medication, it's on the up and up. Now, sometimes when people pick up medicine, mm -hmm. it's on the up and up. What does that tell you? 
How about the rest of the times? Same conversation. Economically, Economically in, a recession, in a recession, when people don't have jobs, these prescriptions may be a lifeline of survival to some people. Does that mean he knows that they're selling the drugs? I think so. With a corrupt medical doctor in their sights, the investigators were confident they were building a solid case. Latasha Lewis, their informant inside the Women's Medical Society Clinic, was brought to FBI headquarters in downtown Philadelphia for a debrief by the interagency team. Then the story took an unexpected turn. So we take Latasha down to the Fed building and we interview down there. Assistant District Attorney Christine Wexler recalls some of those early interviews with Latasha. Christine is a blonde, bubbly, extremely energetic woman. She'd need to be. As well as prosecuting serious crime cases for the DA's office, she was a mother of four. Nowadays, she's in private practice, traveling the country, using the investigating skills that served her so well in the Gosnell case. I talked with her in the back garden of her suburban Philadelphia home. We sat in a garden strewn with toys, a children's swing set moved in a warm breeze, and we talked about horrific crimes against the most vulnerable. We brought in Woody's informant, Latasha, Tasha. Mm -hmm. And Tasha is very smart. She's very bright. Yeah. She's very well-spoken. She's very street smart. I mean, she, this girl has been around the block. She knew exactly what was going on. Yeah. All these girls were like that. I mean, they were, they, they were good about their money. They were good about mm -hmm. separating themselves from the ugliness. Tasha, like, unloaded the whole thing. She's like, this is what we would do. And everybody in the neighborhood knew them. DEA, we're Drug Enforcement Administration, so we focus on drugs. So our first part of the interview is always about drugs. But a routine thing is we say, is there anything else that we should know about? Any other criminal activity that has nothing to do with drugs? Like, are they selling guns? Is there terrorism involved? You know, whatever, human trafficking. Um, is there anything else you think we should know about? And she was basically the first big revelation to what was going on in that office that nobody had a clue. So this young lady says, well, yeah, he's got people in there doing, um, running IVs, administering anesthetic, um, and none of them have any licenses. Then she did talk about how dirty the facility was, and they reused instruments, and the people there were like sixth grade educated. And then there's also cats all through the office and she says one day we came in one morning and the, the cat's laying in the middle of the floor but it looked like it was moving but the cat was dead what was moving was the entire coating of fleas on this cat in the doctor's clinic she said and a lot of us are getting sick and some of us think that it's from the fumes from the medical waste that's rotting he's got he's got medical waste in the basement and in the freezer and uh, she says it's from the abortions which I didn't know they did abortions at that point. But so these are like body parts that are decomposing and the fumes from this rotting human flesh was making the employees sick. So, wow, this is weird. Weird, certainly. And in breach of hygiene standards, probably. But it may not have been illegal. However, this was only the beginning. Latasha then told the detectives about a woman who had died at the clinic. Then she told us about what happened to Karnamaya Mangar. And she didn't know Karnamaya's name. She just described her as an Indian woman who came in around November 2009 
and that someone had given her what she believed was a lethal dose of Demerol. And that is what really got me thinking, oh my God, like so the death of this woman really took precedent over even the drug stuff. So I try to investigate finding out what happened in the my Mangar because I'm like, this had a, a police report had to have been made. So being a Philadelphia police officer before and responding to emergency incidents, I know we do reports and we end up getting case numbers. So I first thing I try to do is find a, a case number or an incident report for that location. No luck. And none of it made sense. Um, they had to have a police report. It, it, it's confusing as well because normally when they dispatch an ambulance to the scene, which they did, then the police would have been notified and there would have been a police report. It was just protocol to show up just as assistance to the medical people there. As Jim and the team were to discover, there was a long history of poor record keeping and failing to investigate numerous suspicious occurrences in and around Dr. Gosnell's clinic. So I'm like, what's the next thing I could do? So I called down the medical examiner's office and spoke to a medical examiner officer who did the first lookup for me. And I gave him, all I had was an Indian woman died in 2009 at 3801 Lancaster Avenue. And boom, he pulled up the death report. And it says, basically she was being treated at his clinic and went unconscious and died of cardiac arrest or something like that. Um, but it, it surprised me because I'm thinking there's no Philadelphia police report on a death of this woman. The only way I'm finding out about it is a medical examiner report that is not gonna be made public to anybody. So after that, the medical examiner officer uh, said, oh, the medical examiner's here, Dr. Collins, and he'll give you a copy of the toxicology report, because that's what I wanted too, because basically if Latasha said that she believed someone had given her what she believed was a lethal dose of Demerol, it would show up in the toxicology report. So Dr. Collins himself actually came over, gave me the toxicology report, and showed the amount of fentanyl that was in her system the other thing that Dr. Collins circled, and he actually circled them on the, the report that I still have, the Demerol level. He said, I would rule that either the Demerol, this amount, or the fentanyl would be enough to show cause of death, which would be exactly corroborating what Latasha Lewis had said. The investigation into Dr. Gosnell was now escalating. Had he drugged a patient to death? We should be able to go right after Gosnell just for this particular crime. I then prepared a search warrant based on the interview of Latasha Lewis, based on the evidence I received from the ME's office. So I got a state search warrant relating to the death of Karnamaya Mangar. Jason Huff got a federal search warrant for the drug stuff. So February 18th, 2010, we get together at the Fed building. As they prepared to search his clinic and come face to face with a man who would dominate their professional and personal lives for the next several years, it's interesting to ask, just who is Kermit Baron Gosnell? How did he end up at the Women's Medical Society Clinic? I have visited him in prison and have had many phone calls with him from the Huntington State Correctional Facility. He's even sent me his rather creepy poetry. 
During my visit, his persona veered from charming old man to continually putting his hand on my leg. Throughout it all, he had an answer for everything. He likes to talk about himself. At this stage, it should be said that Gosnell is a very unreliable source, even about his own biography, never mind his many crimes. I have found him to be a frequent and consummate liar, and many of his claims and stories later proved false after some very basic research. But first, the name. Where did he get it? Kermit is a name that most people associate with a green frog puppet. It turns out his grandfather was an admirer of President Teddy Roosevelt, who named his son Kermit. Before The Muppet Show appeared on America's televisions, Gosnell's grandfather gave Gosnell's father the name and it was passed on to him. Perhaps not surprisingly, he now prefers to use his middle name, Baron. He was born on February 9th, 1941. I was a, a condom mistake on their honeymoon. I grew up with parents who had a difficult initial 30 years of marriage. My father uh, was working, and he was able to save money. He was very prudent with money, and he became a mechanic after the war. And he worked at a gas station that he eventually saved money and bought. And he was able to buy a house, which we were the first uh, black family to move in. Gosnell was an only child. He believed being an only child and the source of conflict between his parents had a profound effect on him as an adult. Surprisingly, he believes it was mostly positive. There are a lot of things I could say. I'm very close with both my parents. And uh, I became the focus of arguments because uh, my father wanted me to work with him. And I worked with him from the age of nine. So one of the days that we worked together turns out to be the only day that I could take music lessons. And my mother wanted me to take music lessons, which is a very interesting and important factor in my background. And so it became a thing of contention that every time I made a mistake on the piano, both parents would be upset. And it, it aided to my uh, performance anxiety. I really only recently got over it. I'm similarly proud of my mother. She and I were extremely close. And uh, she's an extremely supportive mother and really had tremendous effect in um, my uh, positive transference, if you understand Freudian terms. In other words, I became very sensitive and responsive to women in reaction to my, my devoted uh, mother. By any standards, Kermit Baron Gosnell had a safe, middle-class upbringing in a predominantly black community in Philadelphia through the 1940s and 50s. So much so that he was able to go to medical school to study to become a doctor, qualifying with a medical degree from Thomas Jefferson University in 1966. He says there was a shortage of black doctors at the time, and he was offered the chance to become rich and have a successful practice in New York. But he turned it down for altruistic reasons. He wanted to help the people of Philadelphia, or so he claims. At the time, uh, very few black students were admitted in medical school. So it was a black community that I chose to serve because of the inequality that I saw. And I committed myself to care there 
the issue of eugenics in that the people who sponsored Planned Parenthood were interested in the eugenics and the concept of limiting people. This is of, a call from uh, Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution, Huntingdon. This call is subject to reporting and monitoring. In limiting the population of people of color. And uh, I think everyone sort of knows that that is true, yes? So you're familiar with that. Gosnell claimed to care about the black community he worked in. But scratch the surface and you quickly uncover a contempt for that community. He seems to despise black people. And in words that would make a racist or eugenicist blush, he talked openly about using abortion as a way of improving the race. I feel very strongly that uh, abortion is a very important service for people. And one of the things I wanted you to look into was the instructions on fruit trees. Pruning. Um, I've had a number of fruit trees out of wonderful garden. And I, I think that pruning has advantages. And the thing about fruit trees, if you don't prune them, they stop producing after three to four years. So pruning has certain advantages. And I'm looking to a controlled study of patients who have abortion versus patients who have not. But um, I probably should send you a copies of my abortion literature because it gives a lot of my views. It's, it's, uh, I, I guess I've been a published poet since college. Gosnell claims to have been a doctor in Philadelphia's African-American community for altruistic reasons. The truth is that this was also the perfect place for a serial killer doctor to murder and mutilate with little oversight. It was to emerge later that regulators and law enforcement missed or ignored numerous opportunities to stop him, despite pretty obvious law-breaking. Gosnell depended on the fact that many of those who were supposed to regulate him thought the black community didn't merit or expect the same standards as patients in white communities. He held similar opinions himself. It was to be part of the defence strategy at his trial. These attitudes, mixed with politics, allowed him to literally get away with murder. I've had an interesting background and uh, I've had an interesting life. I normally spoke to Kermit Gosnell when he would phone from prison but he phoned a lot. I'd be at a wedding or a party and get a phone call from America's biggest serial killer. I needed a break. So I gave the Gosnell phone to our producer on this podcast, Phelan McAleer, who is also my husband, so I could still get a briefing after the calls. Gosnell was keen to tell him about his famous patient. Did you get a response from Will Smith, from your letter to Will Smith? Not a shit. So his grandmother worked for you, is that correct? What was her name? Helen Bright. She worked for me for approximately two years as my recovery room nurse. This is a call from Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution, Huntingdon. This call is subject to reporting and monitoring. She was an LGPN. A what, sorry? She was a licensed practical nurse at uh, Jefferson. And I were friendly as I was the first black American resident in that department. And she called me to deliver her grandson. So you're saying that you delivered Will Smith, the actor. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Were you friendly with his mother also? Yes, I got to know her. She would pick up uh, Mrs. Bright from work. Mm. And, uh, I wouldn't say we were friendly, but we knew each other and had a very positive 
Looking for allies to help prove his innocence, Gosnell wrote to Will Smith from prison, reminding him of his connection to the actor's family. He says he has not received a reply. Smith probably doesn't want to enter into correspondence with a serial killer, especially a killer who jokes about injuring him. Quote, I'm fond of asserting there could never have been a men in black if I had dropped you on your head, Gosnell wrote in a letter. But Gosnell's life as an apparently respectable community doctor was about to come to an end. A few dedicated law enforcement officers working on a street drugs case became more and more suspicious the more they learned about the good doctor. And then, in February 2010, Dr. Gosnell's clinic at 3801 Lancaster Avenue was about to be raided. Detective Jim Wood, Steve Doherty of the DEA, and Jason Huff of the FBI had the necessary search warrants to help them find conclusive evidence of Dr. Gosnell's drug crimes and perhaps evidence of homicide in the case of Karnamaya Monger. But the investigators had no idea of what lay inside the clinic or the scale of horrific crimes that were about to be uncovered. Coming up in episode two, we go inside the House of Horrors, Philadelphia's Women's Medical Society Clinic. Serial Killer, a true crime podcast, is a production of the Unreported Story Society. To learn more about the crimes of Dr. Kermit Gosnell, you could read my book, Gosnell, The Untold Story of America's Most Prolific Serial Killer. It's co-written with Phelan McAleer. I'm Anne McElhenney. This podcast was produced by Phelan McAleer. Magda Segata was executive producer, and it was edited by Peter Kelly. To get the next episode of Serial Killer, please subscribe for free on your podcast app and sign up for our email list at serialkillerpod.com.